towards the very first words of Jesus' public ministry as follows, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Those are the first words of Jesus' ministry that Matthew records Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near, which would be some of the other translations. Uh, Last week, as I said, we wrapped up Matthew chapter 7 with Jesus' words that mark the uh, validity of a true and wise follower of him is someone who hears and does, both hears and does. And that's quite the important connection between the two. It is not someone who just hears, but it's someone who hears and puts into practice. And I would encourage you, if you missed last week's teaching, go back and listen to it. It was very, very well done. Those who hear and do are like those who would build their home on a sure foundation. The analogy is what Jesus uses. We know those who build their house upon the rock. And so, as I said a second ago, there's a a significant transition here that's about to take place. It's one from where he's speaking and teaching predominantly on the values of the kingdom of God, on the lifestyle of those who live within this kingdom, to now exhibiting the outward expression of kingdom living within the world. This is what is about to take place. So he's spoken at great length, and now he's going to actually show us what this looks like, this values, these values, this lifestyle within the world itself. And I think it's also helpful to remember as we continue through the series of Matthew that we began by defining the kingdom of God, which sometimes can be um, a difficult uh, concept to wrap our minds around. And we gave a definition of the kingdom of God as being the king's rule over the king's people in the king's place. The king's rule over the king's people in the king's place. And exhibiting within it also the king's precepts and the king's presence. So that's a helpful definition if you had forgotten that. Hold that this morning because what we've seen is Jesus has been dealing quite a bit with his people and his precepts. But now what we're going to see is he's going to begin to deal with his presence outside of those people and bringing people in to him, into his rule. And we're also about to see that this kingdom collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this present evil age is no small matter. It's not as though those who are passing by or those who are bystanders were just waiting for Jesus to show up. This is a, it's a tumultuous entrance of the kingdom of God colliding with the kingdom of the present evil age. We're talking about a, it's a radical overthrow of the present evil age was the entrance of the kingdom of God, of a deeply entrenched and formidable opposition is what Jesus faced as the kingdom was brought. He'll say later in Matthew 12, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man? This coming kingdom must exhibit a power, a strength, an authority, as we sang this morning just a moment ago, because of that deeply entrenched present evil age. I was thinking as I was preparing, we 
had spoken about that the kingdom of God is advanced through the hearts and the minds of men and women. And if the hearts and minds of men and women are the battlefield for the kingdom of God, physical lives are often where we see the wounds and the scars and, and, and you know, the, the battle bruises, if you will. They're exhibited within our physical bodies so often. And so we can walk around and we see people who just carry with them these, these scars. And sometimes they don't even understand the battle that they've been engaged within. Those who are outside, and we know, of course, as being believers, the analogy is often that we are engaged in a battle. We know that. We know that it's a war to wake up every morning. We know that it's a war to continue to live diligently and rightly before the Lord Jesus and to exhibit rightly that which he has called us to. But there's so many who don't even realize that which they're engaged within. But yet, they bear the scars of such a battle. And all of this is, is a setup as Jesus ends the previous three chapters, as I said, five, six, and seven, on speaking of kingdom distinctives and characteristics. And he's moving now into kingdom advancement, kingdom overtaking, and kingdom overthrowing, and kingdom building. This is what we were about to see. And I was with one of the elders this week, and we were talking about last week, and we were talking about this week, and they made an astute observation. And as I meditated upon it more and more this week, I, I wanted to just take a moment and share something with you that I believe is significant in this very moment between Matthew's chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 8. Up until January of 2017, when, the, when Capital City Church was handed over from my father to me to lead this church, I would say that we spent at least the last 15 years prior to that diligently laying foundation. And I think that is much of what my dad has been called to be for the church is a foundation layer. And, and I think it was rather apropos, and I would actually say somewhat of a prophetic commissioning that he taught on Matthew 7 last week. And he taught on the importance of a firm and sure foundation, which is very much, again, what we have been about for the last number of years. But I would say to you that I feel like that there's something of this, of me standing here before you today, speaking and teaching to you Matthew chapter 8, which is somewhat of a prophetic commissioning of who we are called to be as a community and who I believe that I am called to lead as this church to no longer just be about our foundation while we're not going to throw away the importance of the foundation. It's important that we inspect it, that we make sure that it remains stable and sure, but that I am to be about leading this church into building, into an upward and outward of the kingdom of, of the building of this church. And so I just stand before you today as, and, and say I felt like um, as I said, I was with one of the elders, and we were talking about that, and I just that really resonated, and I meditated upon it further this week, and I felt like that I was to say that to you guys this morning, because I believe that this, what we're about to move into in Matthew is what we're about to move into as a community. So let's look at Matthew chapter 8. Let's read it together. We're going to be reading Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. I'm reading out of the ESV. And it says this, when he came down from the mountain, again, he's just finished what would be considered the Sermon on the Mount, that portion of Matthew. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. 
And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, He saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought many to him who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirit with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Father God, we marvel at the beauty of the word of the beauty that is truth revealed to us, written and recorded and preserved, that we might be partakers and understanders and apprehenders of truth. So I pray, Lord, that we would take that which you have for us, and Lord, that you by your spirit would plant the seed within our hearts, that it would bear great fruit, that we would be as such a people who have been commissioned and who are obedient and going and building and sending, Father, and taking and receiving those who have been brought into the kingdom of God. We love you today, Lord Jesus. We are grateful to be yours, and it's with glad hearts we receive your word in your name. Amen. So with the time that we have left today, I want to look at three, I want to look at these three healings. Not just three separate circumstances where Jesus shows himself powerful over present evil age, but as first examples of those whom we have been commissioned to take the gospel to as we are building upward and onward, as examples of those whom God has called us to. And as I looked at this, it was very obvious that Matthew intentionally puts together in this portion of Matthew 8 these three healings. And they're, they're not just like three great instances. And I think that there's a nugget of truth that I want to just mine today and um, hopefully allow the Lord to just plant something within us. Also, too, I want to point out this movement from form to function in the sense of, again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 has been really concentrated on this one thing, but now there's movement. And again, let's keep in mind that the kingdom of God now is going to begin to be advanced in the hearts and minds of people. 
So the first account is that of the leper. The leper represents the unclean, the outcast, the marginalized. The second is the Gentile centurion, representing those who are far off, those who are distant from the faith. And the third is Peter's mother-in-law, and she represents those who are low and in a diminished state. So the unclean, the distant and far, and those who are low. That who has, is God who has called. That is who God has called us to bring the gospel to, has he not? So let's look at the first. The first is the leper. Again, representing the unclean. Leprosy was seen as both a physical as well as a spiritual pollution that necessitated the infected person be segregated and ostracized from their community and from their family, oftentimes living in colonies with other infected or diseased individuals. However, determining and dealing with someone who had uh, potentially had leprosy was rigorously laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 13. We won't turn there and read through all of it. I tell you, if you ever want some really exciting reading, read Leviticus 13 on dealing with skin rashes and leprosy and boils and spots. It's something else. For all those dermatologists out there, that gets you really excited, but... Other than that, most of us probably want to just glance right over Leviticus 13. But it's very clear. God was very clear as to how to deal with those who had. And it's interesting. The potentially infected individual would first visit the priest. Hear this. He visited the priest where the priest would inspect the boil or the rash, and they would send them away for a certain period of time. And if it didn't disappear or if it didn't didn't clear up, then that person was deemed as unclean, okay? And they were sent away. Can you imagine that conversation? Well, honey, I've got the leprosy. I've I got to go live over here. Guy's walking away from his tent, and he's got to go live with the leprosy colony. That would be a bummer, wouldn't it? That'd be terrible. But for those who would seem to be healed or cleared up, they would be at whatever period of time, whether it took weeks or months or years, they would come back again, and they, if, they, if they cleared up, the priest would look at them again, and the priest would make a pronouncement that they were no longer unclean, but that they were clean. And thereby reinstituting them within the community, within their families, and no longer were they marginalized. It's interesting, too, that the disease dealing with unclean is frequently the object of Jesus' healing miracles. How often does Jesus deal with leprosy, with those who are unclean? So it's here in Matthew 8 that what Jesus is showing us is that through Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel, he takes that which is unclean, that which cannot be near because of its filth, and he restores it and he makes it of value. He makes it lovely, and he declares it to be unclean no more. That's what the point of the leper is in this story. It shows the power of the gospel to not only heal, but to restore. And what does he do? He restores the leper into community, into family, and he pronounces them to be clean. It's interesting, too. A leper 
someone who had leprosy. And again, leprosy isn't just like the limbs falling off leprosy. It could be, literally, it could be like, you know, whatever, like a heat rash. You could get a heat rash, and next thing you know, you've been labeled with leprosy. They had to walk around, and they actually had to shout, unclean, unclean, as they came in anywhere near of contact with someone that wasn't, of course, infected as well. But what does Jesus Christ do through the power of the gospel? No longer do we have to declare ourselves as unclean, but instead the statement is we are clean. He has professed us to be clean, and we therefore live and we exhibit a life as such. It's interesting, too, that Jesus could have healed the man with simply a single word, as we'll see in a moment in verse 8 with the centurion, right? But only a word. But instead, what does Jesus do? He says he reaches out and he touches him. And that's a really important distinction and a really important aspect here of this portion of text. Because Jesus, it shows that the power of the gospel is not only able, but it does go to the furthest extenses, extenses to reach people where they are. The gospel is sufficient, and we spoke about this a while back. The gospel is sufficient to reach people despite of how far gone they are, of how unclean they are. In this conciliatory picture where Jesus reaches out to the man and touches him, shows that the gospel connecting with humanity in the place of where they are. And a picture and representation of how we too ought to do the same. We can't just wait for people to walk through the doors on a Sunday worship, because how often does that happen? It happens very infrequently that a non-believer just decides to get up and go to a church meeting on a Sunday morning. The primary way in which we're going to see gospel impact is by going to where people are. Despite what we perceive to be, and this is the point of this healing of the leper, despite of what we perceive to be uncleanliness, whether it's some type of social stigma or whether it's an actual physical um, infirmity, or reg regardless of what that is, we have been called to go to where people are, to meet people where they are. It also shows the great heart of compassion that is the crux of Jesus' ministry. The bulk of his healings and miracles were done out of a state of compassion. And we too should exhibit such quality and characteristic in our life to see people not as, oh man, to look down upon someone because, man, I just don't like the way that person smells or, you know, I'm particularly offended by this, per, this person's, you know, background. It's like, that doesn't matter. And we'll look at more, that more in a moment because the gospel has dealt with those types of segregations. He has dealt through Jesus Christ with those types of social constructs that have been placed that keep us apart from one another. And the gospel kicks those things down and meets people where they are, despite of their um, state. So it wasn't just a word, but he touched him. And this act of touching him should have rendered Jesus unclean as per Mosaic law. If anybody comes in contact with somebody that's unclean, now they too are unclean. But what does it do? The touching of Jesus makes the man clean. Jesus isn't unclean, but now the man is clean. The gospel has no consideration for stain nor cleanliness. It has no consideration for what is perceived to be value or worth. It only sees that which God sees. Humanity created in the image of Christ Jesus. 
That's what the gospel sees. The gospel is the peacemaking cleansing of mankind of the effects of sin towards our relationship with God. The peacemaking cleansing is that what the gospel brings. Restoring man into right relationship with God. Bringing us near to him as I read out of Hebrews chapter 10 during worship time. What does Paul say in Romans 5? He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Jesus didn't say to the leper, be healed. He didn't say to the leper, be cured. He said what? Be clean. The gospel for the unclean is Jesus Christ declaring us as clean calling us back into reconciled relationship both with God and with each other. So the second is the centurion. The first being the leper representing the unclean. The second being the centurion representing those who are distant. Okay, we know that he's a Gentile because of how he responds to Jesus' willingness to attend to his request. The centurion's response is this, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. The the centurion represents those who are far off from the faith. The Gentile, we know, was seen by the Jew as not only being unclean, right? But it's like they were distant. They were unreachable. They were too far gone. And it was all about them at that moment. It was all about the Jews, their inheritance, sons of Abraham. Man, we've got this. And Jesus, boy, he doesn't miss an opportunity, does he, to smack the religious leaders upside the face. He goes, wham, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Oh, and by the way, it's not you who are going to be sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll be cast out into outer darkness. But it's going to be those, and he says, what, from the east and from the west, they will be brought in. And a picture of the gospel calling in already, Speaking of the foreshadowing that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but it was for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It was for the whole of creation that the gospel was going to be proclaimed through Jesus Christ and that the kingdom of God had come to proclaim the gospel. The centurion represents the family member that we've prayed for year after year after year. The centurion represents the friend or the friend's whom we've longed to see reconciled and to be brought into a place of freedom and health in Jesus Christ. He represents the socially powerful, people of high standing, those who are well-to-do. The centurion represents the morally good, the person who wants to do right, thereby gaining their righteousness through good acts. That's all represented here in this man. We all know a centurion or two, don't we? We all have a centurion that we pray for in our lives. Probably more than one, probably more than two. Somebody who just seems, man, they are too far gone. They are hopeless. What else can I do? We throw up our hands sometimes. What else can we do but pray? It feels hopeless sometimes, doesn't it, for some people in our lives? But God is saying to us today, The gospel is able and capable to reach even the most distant, even those who we think are the most distant. I was reading this week, once again, I don't know if you guys are 
spending time to read upon the matter of LGBTQ issues as it's affecting the church. And the church is trying to find its way through a, a myriad of things. And anyway, I was reading a, a paper, this, uh, an article this week that the Gospel Coalition had written. In fact, Brett McCracken did the interview, and Brett's one of the elders down at Southlands. Um, in fact, Brett's the editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if you guys knew that. But um, he interviewed this guy by the name of Beckett Cook. And Beckett Cook was a really high-profile um, fashion individual within the um, Southern California, you know, the Hollywood glitz and glamour scene. His whole life spelt in, spent as a homosexual male. Um, went to a coffee shop one day, saw a couple of individuals sitting at a coffee shop with their Bibles open and reading, and he just went up to them and he engaged them in a conversation. And he asked them what their church teaches about homosexuality. And these individuals were forthright, and they just said it teaches that it's a sin, and they engaged in a conversation. He went to church... He went to uh, church with them the next following Sunday, and the Lord radically saved him. And he's got this super cool story. And um, why am I saying this? Oh, because talk about being distant, right? Talk about those who we don't think there's even the possibility of reaching. And yet God saved this man radically, all because somebody was just obedient to speak what is true. Isn't that amazing, eh? So despite our unbelief, Perhaps at times for certain individuals, the gospel is sufficient and the gospel is able. Hey, Josh, when you get it worked out, would you bring it back? Because I need my hands. I feel restricted right at the moment. <laughs> I'm not Italian. I'm Spanish. We like to eat with our hands. So, I, yeah. I'm already in my <laughs> Jesus is prophesying through this man the breadth of the gospel for all who would believe. It wasn't going to just be those who were in the faith, those who had long believed themselves to be the inheritors of the long way to kingdom. No, through the gospel, the person of Jesus, all who would hear and believe by faith would be saved. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 3, 28? We know the text really well. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, right? There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel has no consideration for distance, regardless of how far or how near Simply believe in the Lord by faith and receive salvation. It's in, it's in this too, the, the reconciliation that happened was not just this way. It's not vertical, but it's this way as well. It's horizontal. So the reconciliation that the gospel brings is, of course, between man and God, but it also is between man and man. And it brings us back into right standing with one another. 
And again, so it doesn't matter how far we think the person is or how distant, the gospel has made provision for that reconciliation to take place. Because of what I just said, and Paul keys in on that, and isn't that also Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 2? Right, doesn't he say, uh, let's look at that together. I love this, and we, we talked about this when we went through our summer series last year. When we were dealing with the cultural arguments, cultural liturgies, dealing with racism and discrimination. And I love this text because this text is the heart of that issue itself. And it says this, um, Ephesians 2, Fifteen. Thank you so much. Let's back it up to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So in other words, you were Gentiles by the Jews. You were called the uncircumcised out of the faith. Remember that you, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And here's that Galatians 3.28. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. And here it is, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the sufficiency of the gospel. For all of mankind, one unto another. In Christ Jesus, there are no distinctions. There are no separations. He doesn't call us to forget who we are, but he calls for us to live in the truthfulness of who he says that we are now in Christ Jesus, which is one new man. This is the answer to the social strifes that we face today. It's working towards this. This is the heart of God through the gospel. And this is our message that we bring of reconciliation. Not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven, but believe in the Lord. And yes, your sins are forgiven, but now experience life and pleasure and harmony with your brother and sister, with those who are created in the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is what the centurion represents. And so the gospel has no consideration for the far. It just says you are all able to be reached. And then let's look at the very last one. And I want to land not just by considering what this means for us in our witness and testimony, but how do we respond to this as well? And I think there's three easy responses that I think are modeled for us here in Matthew chapter 8. So the last is the mother-in-law. And I thought, I thought, why do you... And by low, I don't mean because she's a mother-in-law. 
<laughs> mom-in-laws get bad raps, don't they, sometimes? Where did that start? Who came up with giving mom-in-laws bad raps? There's always, I guess, a tinge of truth to the stereotype, right? Perhaps sometimes. I don't know. My mom-in-law is great. But um, <laughs> I was just picturing this, like, this Jewish mother as, like, he's walking out. Why don't you get a good job anyway? Why don't you quit this fishing? And he's telling, like, you know, she's, she, Peter's mother-in-law is telling, telling her daughter, you know, you should have married Matthew. He was always a really polite boy. You know, and he's a tax collector, by the way, too. You know, <laughs> can you picture this? And Peter's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, Phyllis, get off my back. <laughs> so that's not what I mean by the low, the low state. Not that she's a mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law represents, represents those that are seen as lesser than, those perhaps that are in a subservient state beneath or perhaps seen to be unworthy of the elevated place of worth that Jesus gives to all, as I just read from Galatians and Ephesians. That's what Peter's mother-in-law represents. And the reality is, is that women at that time within culture, they did hold a lower place. But what is Jesus? So, so this isn't now, this isn't a, a battle cry for like down with the patriarchy, right? No, th- this is actually Jesus modeling the, the right harmony between male and female. Lest we, again, go back and read Galatians 3.28 and, and Ephesians 2 that we just read. But this is Jesus saying, no, this is, you know, this is how it ought to be. This, this is the complementarian uh, uh, a model by which, uh, nature by which I have created male and female. The point was that Jesus didn't discriminate on matters of social boundary. And that not only did he not discriminate, but he elevated her and he restored her, thereby showing to all once again the image of social reconciliation within the gospel and within the kingdom of God. This is so super important, you guys. I mean, when we consider these cultural matters, these ones that seem so big to wrap our hearts and minds around, how am I going to possibly come up with an answer for an issue that's been bubbling culturally for the last, you know, five decades? This is it. It's simple. The gospel is simple. How we walk that out, though, requires wisdom. How we speak about it requires discernment. But it requires us to understand it, to believe it, and to walk it out, you guys. It isn't just enough that we go like, yeah, that sounds great. No, we have to begin to model it as well. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And once again, we have an account where Jesus, he's not fearful of the stigma. He's not worried about, you know, what what it's going to cause by him touching this woman. He's not afraid of getting sick from, you know, whatever she had. Who knows how long she had been laying there, too? We don't know. She says she had a fever. And again, some, some of you son-in-laws are like, oh, yeah, you should just leave her there. She's better, she's better off just being, left, just being left there. No, but Jesus says, no, it doesn't matter how sick she is. But it says, again, that he touches her, and immediately she is healed. He's connecting with her, with her humanity and showing us that the gospel goes beyond comfort and it goes beyond our own personal concerns and it meets people at their place of need. Are you hearing me this morning? So what's our response? And I'll do this quickly with the time that's left. And I do want to ask that we just take some time this morning after this to respond.
So I'm going to ask for a little more time past noon today. So what's the response? It's important to remind ourselves this first and foremost. In the gospel's sufficiency to reach those who we might deem as unreachable or unworthy or clean, that it is us first that Christ came into and saved as being unclean, unreachable, and unworthy. We have to identify with these places. We, and that's the part of compassion. We have to identify with those that are outside of Christ. Because we were the same. And some of us who've had the benefit of being raised in the faith, we still know our wretched and low state that God saved us from. You don't have to have some really radical story of what you've been saved out of. But just the fact that you were, if you understand what sin does to the life and the soul of a human being, that's enough in and of itself. So that's, the, that's an important place to first begin. We were unclean. We were distant. We were low. Whether we or someone else had placed us there, we were thought of as not being worthy of a place of honor. And quite frankly, our sin doesn't help us in that matter, does it? But what does Ephesians say just before that, what we read in verse 2? But God, being rich in mercy, but God, loving us, but God, extending his hand of reconciliation to us, looked upon our lowly state, called us clean, brought us near, and elevated us to a place of worth. That's the beauty of the gospel. So there's three reactions, and let's just look at them here within these last few minutes. I want you to notice the significant and the substantial reactions within each of these examples. What can we take away now as those of us who are in Christ, as recipients of the gospel? How do we respond and how do we, other than just being moved and motivated to take the gospel, but now what is our response? What does that look like for someone that's in Christ? The leper, after being warned not to tell anyone until he had visited the priest and given his offering as a proof of cleansing, Mark tells us in his account in Mark chapter 1, Mark leads with this story, by the way. It says that he went out and he began to talk freely. So Jesus says, don't go tell anyone about it. And he goes right out. He's like, you got to hear this. This is what he did for me. Check it out. The rash is gone. That's what he does. He goes out and he, and he creates such a stir that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but he then had to go out into the desolate places where crowds came. And Luke tells us that the story spread so far abroad that crowds came from afar just because of this one man. And I was reminded of Peter and John going past the gate beautiful, and they reach down and, and the, 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 um, the lame beggar, and they heal the lame beggar, and the story proceeds in Acts, and it talks about how that guy was right here at the hip of Peter and John for like the next 48 hours, attesting to what God has done. This guy, having been pronounced clean, couldn't even help it after face-to-face -face with the Savior saying, don't go tell anybody, goes right out and tells everybody because he had to. He had to. He couldn't help it. It was the only thing he could do. The response of somebody who has been declared to be clean is one both of great joy as well as exuberant profession of what has been done for them. Remember, it wasn't just a pronouncement of now being clean. It was a wholesale change. 
His whole life was radically changed. And do you think that he forgot about that in the years that went along? No. Do you think he stopped talking about that in the years that went along? No way. That stuck with him. You guys, that should stick with us. That's our story. His exuberant profession of what God has done is the life of a Christian. This is our response, having been proclaimed and pronounced to be clean. We should tell others about the cleansing that happened to our life, about the new life that we received in Jesus Christ, about the newness of life that we've been brought into. And as I said earlier, instead of having to declare and tell people, we're unclean, we're unclean now, we say, we're clean, we're clean, we're new, we're something new. We're alive in Christ Jesus today. With the centurion, there isn't really much said about him after Jesus healed his servant, but what we can see from the centurion's response is the level of faith and expectation that he exhibited as a response to seeing Jesus for who he truly was. Only say the word and he will be healed. This ought to be our faith and expectation as a Christian to simply and earnestly believe on the word or words which Jesus has spoken to us that surely we will see Surely we will experience, surely we will know what is needed for us in this time. To have that level of faith that the centurion had, just say the word. That's what we ought to be saying as well. God, you have said. God, you have revealed. God, you have told. God, you have promised. God, you have spoken. In faith, I hold to that today. In faith, I live by that. In faith, I believe on it. Despite my unbelief, as we spoke of maybe earlier, despite what circumstance seems to be around me, God, I believe in this today. You have spoke the word now in faith. I receive it. That is the level of faith. That's the life that we have. And this isn't like, like you guys need to get it together kind of message. No, this is like me reminding us all like how beautiful and simple and how accessible and how joyful and life-giving The gospel is both for the unsaved and both for the saved. Some of us need to remind ourselves today of what he has done for us. And then lastly, the mother-in-law, and this is really, honestly, out of the three, it's interesting, the least is said about her, but yet I think this is probably more of the profound of the three. What do we see? He touches her, says he touched her hand and the fever left her and in the same sentence, and she rose and began to serve him. What a beautiful picture of a life that has been brought from low to worth, from devalued to valuable, from whatever other analogy you want to use. What a beautiful picture this is. Her automatic response wasn't to worry about, gosh, I've been bedridden for the last three days. I got to do the laundry. I need to make dinner for so-and-so. I need to, you know, pick up. It was to serve Jesus. That was the first thing that she thought to do. Immediately, although it doesn't say immediately, it's basically implied. She gets right up and she begins to serve him. Some of us need to remember today the life that we've been called into 
to serve our king. We need to be reminded because perhaps we've forgotten the beauty of what has been done for our life, the profundity of what has happened that's, been ma- that's making us new and has changed us. And we've forgotten that the, the simple call of the Christian is to serve God and King. It's to serve him. It's to put aside our preferences. It's to put aside the things that maybe we even need to do right in this very moment because we need to tend to serving God. Because this person has come into my home just now, you know, and they're asking me for help, and, but it's 6 o'clock and i got to get dinner on the table and Bobby needs to go to baseball practice and I've got to, you know, grade these papers for school and blah, 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 and all those things are good and right and need to be done. But God is saying, no, I want you to serve me right now. This is how you're going to serve me in this place. You're going to meet this person where they're at, and you're going to speak of what is true. This should be our immediate and ongoing response for those who believe in him, to bring him the best of what we have, not to concern ourselves first and foremost with our wants and needs, but to know that he who has given to us much we give back to him the first and the best of what we have. So the responses were then a life of joyful and exuberant profession of Jesus, a life of believing in faith on the word of the Lord, and a life of serving him. Boy, that sounds simple, doesn't it? It also sounds like Christianity that we probably all know. Believe in faith, serve the Lord Jesus, and tell others about how wonderful that he is. May the Lord Jesus Christ Give us the grace and the faith and the joy to live in such a way today. Amen.